Welcome to another edition of the Double A Team. My name is Ken Fang, along with my co-host Stephen Degishi, and I'm back after the last time I was away. I had an issue at work, so I wasn't able to be on. But Stephen, thank you for hosting the show in my place. Much appreciated, and glad to be with you again this week. Uh, welcome back, Ken. Uh, hope, uh, thank God that uh, you know you were able to make it this week. Uh, you know, obviously you had to uh, deal with the personal stuff uh, last week, but. Uh, you know, last week we focused on the NFL draft, uh, which was about a week or two away. And uh, tonight uh, we're definitely going to be reviewing the NFL draft uh, to begin the show. So, um, yeah, we were able to reach out to several guests. Uh, obviously, they were very, very busy shortly after the draft, without question. You know, these people have been working around the clock leading up to this, uh, you know, momentous occasion. So any draft uh, gurus out there who was able to come onto our show, we're, you know, we're definitely thankful because obviously they deserve a, a significant amount of time between now and the uh, the college football uh, big kicks off in about uh, late August. So. Absolutely. And uh, without further ado, let's bring in our first guest. It's Shane Hallam, uh, Shane P. Hallam of the DraftCountdown.com. And we're going to talk about a lot about the NFL draft. But, Stephen, I know you as a Bears super fan have a lot to <laughs> ask about, Shane, about the Bears. And then uh, I'll come in later to talk about uh, my team, the Browns. So without further ado, uh, Shane, thank you for joining us today. No, thank, thanks for having me. I appreciate you guys bringing me on, man. It was, it was a fun draft, so I enjoyed <laughs> breaking it down. Absolutely. And, uh, Stephen, you, uh, the floor is yours. Thank you, Ken. All right, Shane, let's uh, let's uh, talk about the Bears draft. Uh, first and foremost, having done some search on the Bears uh, draft over the weekend, do you like or do you don't like the Bears draft? And what grade would you give them as of today? I, I, I like the Bears draft. I think in terms of the players that they picked, if you're just grading kind of pick by pick value um, and how they fit the team, I, I think we're talking about, you know, a, a solid A minus. I think it was a good draft as a whole. Uh, I know, you know, if you want to kind of dig into, well, did they do enough to help Justin Fields? Was it enough to fill these needs? Then I think you can knock it down a little bit if you want to go at it that way. Personally, I just like to address, you know, what I know, and that's the prospects and the value of the prospects. I thought it was really good. I mean, I thought, you know, Kyler Gordon, their their first pick, um, I had him graded as a first-round pick. So to get him a 39, get him in the second when they traded away their future first, I, I think was was killer. I think he's a starting corner in the NFL. Uh, and I, I almost every pick until – you know, the, the sixth round, I, I think they got a guy that I liked higher than where they drafted them. I liked that player more. So to me, that, that's a really good draft. You know, that that is what you want. You're getting value. You're picking players that either have big potential or are, you know, going to do good things for you immediately. And that's the key. Okay. What do you think of the second round uh, pick, uh, Jaquan Brisker out of Penn State? That was somewhat of a real uh, surprising selection. Um, you know, I think a lot of us Bears fans were hoping for George Pickens or, or you know, trade down possibly to get more picks. Uh, were you surprised by the uh, uh, Brisker pick? 
I, th- I think I was a little surprised that the Bears took him, right? Uh, like you said, I think a lot a lot of people, myself included, were looking at, you know, offensive tackle, we're looking at wide receiver, mm-hmm. and there's a lot of value there. I think what Jaquan Brisker kind of brings to the table, and maybe, maybe why they took him, is you have a player who was the, the leader of that Penn State defense this year and last year. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, you're looking at someone in Brisker – who it was a kind of vocal leader, had the green dot. He was the one kind of calling the plays and the defensive backfield shifts. You know, he he can command the defense. And that's not something you get all the time. So to me, I think it's a, a fit in that way where, you know, the Bears defense, I think trading away Khalil Mack, what's the identity? Who's going to step up? I think Brisker's one of those players that's going to step up, become almost an instant leader, an instant impact player. So it makes a lot of sense to me if you're a new GM, new head coach, we want an identity. I think Brisker's an identity setter. He he plays hard, hits hard, uh, plays really smart, and has had a number of years of good experience in production. One of the most controversial picks for the Bears was the third rounder, uh, Velas Jones from Tennessee by way of USC. And and I have to admit that uh, I was on Twitter going a little bit overboard with his uh, age. You know, twenty five years old. He's uh, twenty five this month. When you think of a guy like who's 25, you either think of a guy who's had some, uh, you know, real grade problems, had some uh, run-ins with the law, or like in some cases a former minor leaguer left the baseball and went back to school and became, a, you know, a NFL draft prospects or something like that. But uh, so several questions regarding Jones. One, do you like the pick? Number two, what kind of an upside does he have as his age where he is right now and uh, – and number three, was uh, was he overdrafted? I think they're all good questions. And I think it's tough to look at, you know, when you're talking about, okay, day two receivers and Christian Watson, George Pickens, and you're kind of getting excited before the draft for these type of players you think can be true. Number one, yeah. so you take Velas Jones. You know, I, what Velas Jones brings to the table is not just the, the receiving option, but I think having a guy – in my opinion, is a top three return man in this draft, like elite special teams player. You know, this isn't just, oh, he, he returns kicks. Like he was one of the best returners in college football playing in the SEC. Even the returners that I had graded above him, uh, guys that also went day two, Marcus Jones, the corner from Houston, for example, you know, didn't do it in the SEC against these top athletes. Bose Jones is able to do that. So I think you get that like built in. You have a built in role for him. And I think as receiver, I mean, this is probably about where he'd go. I'd say maybe, you know, maybe it's 20 picks too high. I, I would think maybe late third, but uh, a lot of people had him as a late day two pick. Um, if the Bears did not take him, they were not getting him in the next round. I'll tell you that. And there were a lot of teams interested. There were a lot of teams at the Senior Bowl who were very interested in him. He was brought in for numerous visits. I mean, because this is a player that you're going to get like 4-3 speed. You're going to get the return ability. And something about Tennessee is uh, the Tennessee Volunteers receivers don't get a ton of production. You know, it's not, it's not a great passing offense run first so a guy like josh palmer last year the chargers drafted had a little bit had did decently for his first year um I, you know i thought that that was similar to velis jones if Jones should have done more he was open you watch the film yeah he was open and just there's no one to throw him the football you know so what that says to me now you have justin fields throwing the football i think that's going to help the age is an issue i mean it's a question but um i, I think when you draft someone it's look if, if he hits 
and a 29, he, he's going to a second contract, and you're like, okay, now we're worried about the age. I mean, he, he hit, and I think that's more important uh, ultimately than the age itself. So, uh, yeah, I, I think it's something that people poke fun of, but maybe it's better to have someone with a little bit more experience and that has some of the, this playing in the SEC, playing in the Pac-12. Uh, to me, I think that's the way to go. Okay, so I, I, you know, I feel a little bit better after you know spending the weekend trying to uh, get myself, you know, <laughs> trying to. Uh, I think a lot of us were like twenty-five. Wow, you know, so that's a little bit, you know, and the fact that uh, you know Justin Fields spent time with uh, Ryan Poles to go over tapes, I think, uh, goes to show that uh, maybe there's a bit of a validity to that. Um, on the uh, the third day, the Bears spent probably went on the offensive alignment spree pretty much in the uh, fifth and the sixth round out of the uh, offensive alignment that the bears picked, who has the best chance of not only sticking with the team, but also making a, a, a you know, contribution, maybe not as a starter, but perhaps maybe as a, you know, a, you know, maybe a swing guy or something like that. Yeah, not, not to just take the highest drafted guy, but I think Braxton Jones, the offensive tackle from Southern Utah uh, if you had told me that he was drafted in the third round, I wouldn't have blinked an eye. He was my 13th ranked offensive tackle in this class and ended up going much later than that. I mean, he's just a top tier athlete, like really explodes off the snap um, in that level of competition. Obviously it's not the highest level of competition, but there's some speed rushers. He did not have any trouble with those guys. Um, and he can kind of pop in the run game too. I think he has a little bit of those uh, hands. He just needs to, you know, figure out how to do some of the technique stuff, hand placement, how to get the proper leverage. He, he doesn't always get those knees bent properly. So I think that's why he kind of fell as, okay, there's some work to do, but he has the athletic upside that you need for an NFL offensive tackle, a starting offensive tackle, in my opinion, if you can coach him up and get uh, kind of the technique down pat. So, I, I mean, I think he has a chance to, uh, to become um, a permanent player on that roster you could play left tackle right tackle like you said maybe a swing backup with some upside for more I think there is some upside for more so he he was probably my favorite offensive line pick um, but I also think the the sixth round pick of Zach Thomas is really intriguing in a lot of similar ways I think I think Zachary Thomas um, out of San Diego State was my rank 14 guard um, just you know long arms very tall his foot speed's pretty good uh, he makes a lot of mental errors and I think that's why he fell. Like there's definitely some film where he's just guesses wrong or, you know, he shifts his weight the wrong way and just makes some mental mistakes in terms of reading the pass rusher. So, but as a late round pick, I mean, you get a guy that's tall, athletic, has the arm length. You know, I like this. If you have, if you have confidence in your coaching staff, then these are the kind of players I think you should draft. Guys that have the upside to be starters. And it wouldn't surprise me if, if we get like two of these day two or day three offensive linemen end up making a significant impact. Maybe if there's an injury on that offensive line uh, this year or next year. Mm -hmm. One of the guys that a lot of people are very, very high on is the uh, HBCU player, uh, Jeter uh, Carter. Do you see him uh, maybe being a, a guard, perhaps maybe kicked inside and uh, be a starter perhaps uh, as, as, as early as this year? Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I think uh, I think maybe he needs a little bit more time to, you know, kind of uh, develop himself. Um, you know, I'll say I'll say for Jay Tyler Carter, like he he's he hustles. You know, he doesn't take plays off like off the snap. He is quick. 
Um, you know, I think he could even play a little offensive tackle, but is obviously much better in guard. That's where they drafted him. Uh, so I, I think he outworks. He, you know, he outworked uh, the defensive lineman when he played there at the, at the HBCU. And, and that combined with some athleticism that he flashed in the lower body down, I think you have upside. You have a guy that's going to work hard and work hard on the field and off the field. And he has some requisite, you know, foot movement and athleticism. Then there's some upside there. I think in the seventh round, I mean, that's the kind of shot you want to take is a player that's that has the size, has some of the athleticism and is a hard worker. Uh, just it's a big jump to the NFL. I think that's going to be the big question. Uh, but I think it, it, he could end up as a, as a reserve player uh, for the Bears down the line. I apologize. I have accidentally logged myself out there for just a little bit there. Yeah, you're good. Um, Shane P. Hallam from the Draft Countdown is joining us to review the Chicago Bears draft uh, draft on the Double A team tonight. Um, the rest of the draft, uh, you know, obviously they got uh, a punter, uh, a kicker, and a you know a very excitable safety. Uh, let's round up the uh, the rest of the draft picks and uh, what do you see out of them uh, for the Bears in the upcoming season? I, I think it's really interesting. I really like Dominic Robinson, the edge rusher out of Miami of Ohio. Um, uh, when I watched the bowl game for Miami of Ohio, uh, I mean, he he was living in the backfield. I mean, every single play. He just those long arms when he's playing against offensive linemen with shorter arms. I mean, he he abused them. And when you see a game like that, you're like, dude, I, I mean, I want this guy on my team. Um, now you go back and watch certain film when he's playing gets better competition. He struggled. He clearly has the athletic build, the, the, the length, the explosion, but just doesn't know how to use it. Like a lot, it seems like a similar theme. It, it, like I said, it seems like the bears have confidence. They can coach these guys up. And that's really what the focus was. Let's get players that can play. Uh, there were a lot of teams, the Colts, for example, did the exact same thing. So I, I think uh, Dominic Robinson's a player I'm really excited about. Cause I, I do think as a situational rotational pass rusher, there's some upside there. Um, and, and then Trenton Gill is kind of interesting. He's not a, a punter. I expect to get drafted at pick 255. Um, but, you know, did get invited to the combine, which for punters is a little bit rare, uh, you know, to, to have. And, and I think the best thing that Trenton Gill does is kickoffs. I mean, his kickoffs are very, very good, very solid, usually ended up in the end zone almost always. So I think that's kind of built in with him. Um, and he punts pretty quick, you know. So something I look for in punters is do they get the ball off quick or is there, is there block opportunities here? And he's not a guy that's going to get the punt blocked a little bit. Maybe, maybe, you know, he doesn't quite have the consistency but or hang time, but I think there's uh, some good things to like about him. So I think that was an intriguing pick, and um, I'll be rooting for him maybe to win that punting job this year. All right. Um, what about the uh, kicker, Tristan Ebner? Uh, does he have uh, maybe more of a punt, punt returner type of kick returner uh, along with the Velas Jones, you know, to uh, help out the uh, offense with the position? Yeah, he, he, he was a track guy in, in high school. Um, you know, he was definitely like a big track athlete. You know, when he gets up to full speed and he does really quickly, um, he becomes tough to bring down. So, uh, you know, sometimes going through traffic, when he gets through the line of scrimmage, he slows down and, and doesn't, doesn't get knocked backwards. He's one of those players that falls forward, picks up those extra yards, kind of turned out the tough stuff. His teammate Abram Smith, who didn't get drafted, um, you know, did a little bit more of the outside work uh, this past season. So I like Ebner as a reserve running back that could have a shot on special teams. I think you put him back there, have him and Bellis Jones kind of compete 
um, to fill that spot. But, uh, you know, I think the Bears offense, as we see, is kind of moving in the direction of the, the Packers. You don't need a ton of receivers, but have a group of running backs so you can spell guys, keep guys healthy, uh, and keep them, you know, fresh and just wear down a defense and then hit them with the big plays, Darnell Mooney, Phyllis Jones down the field. Uh, and it's going to be tough to stop. So I'm really interested to see if Ebner gets, you know, makes the roster um, if he gets some usage. Is there anybody on the uh, UDFA that uh, that they signed over the weekend that kind of like intrigues you the most for the Bears? Uh, I mean, I was definitely looking at, you know, when, when we were looking at the Bears, like, okay, is there, you know, is there a receiver that they signed that interested me? And there's one that kind of stood out. Um, I'm, I'm here in Pittsburgh and is a very local, small college. But uh, Cyrus Holder, the wide receiver from Duquesne, mm-hmm. is, um, you know, watching Duquesne this year. I mean, he, he was at, he was open all the time down the field. Like he, he is fast, he is athletic. And so I think for a team that maybe could use another reserve wide receiver, there might be some interest there. He's definitely a player that I'm interested in that I like um, in terms of big upside too. Uh, master Teague, the running back from Ohio state worked out really, really well at the pro day. He never quite had a full range of, you know, working through vision, working through the gap. He kind of ran forward. Um, so I think he's a project, but a really intriguing one who's like one of the best athletes at running back in this entire draft. I also like Gene DeLance, the offensive lineman from Florida, and um, Jack Sanborn, the linebacker from Wisconsin. is a player, very tough, good tackler, special teams player. So it wouldn't surprise me if a couple of these guys make special teams impacts um, on kickoffs, you know, things like that. We cannot leave the uh, the question without asking about the uh, the rest of the NFC North. Um, the way I look at it, I think all three teams certainly got their guys, and um, you know they really improved themselves. What do you think of the uh, the rest of the NFC North? Who had the best draft out of the uh, uh, the three teams out there? I'd probably go with the Detroit Lions. I just like the way the Lions are building their team; that they are building kind of from the inside out. I mean, last year sure. they drafted offensive lineman, defensive lineman. This year's okay, let's get edge rushers, right? They got Aiden Hutchinson number two, obviously. But I, I really like the Josh Pascal pick in the second round from Kentucky. Um, a good leader, you know, really vocal guy who has good pass rush skills. And, and then they got some, you know, heavy game changers, Jameson Williams. I think the trade-up was cheap and brilliant for them to do. Right. Uh, and then Kirby Joseph the safety from Illinois in the third. I think he's an explosive playmaker. And they have two 2023 picks. So if they need to move up for a quarterback, you know, I think they're, they've built that team. I, I just really like what they did the most and how they're building their squad, which is odd to say about the Detroit Lions. Not usually something I come in here <laughs> saying after a draft. That's true. I, I'm, I was scratching my head when the uh, Minnesota and Detroit made that trade. And Minnesota could probably gotten a little more considering how far they moved down and they should have probably gotten a uh, first round pick from the, uh, the, you know, the Detroit lions because Minnesota thought that they were fleecing, but it turned out that the, uh, the value just wasn't there. Um, the Packers drafted, uh, you know, Christian Watson, who many people wanted, you know, including myself, how do you see him fitting in with the, uh, the Packers and their uh, passing game? I, I'm as, as big a Christian Watson fan as you'll find. He was my sixth ranked receiver in this draft. Uh, I, I've been touting him for for a while. Um, I had an article back in early January that I think his career is going to be like Cooper Cup, take a year 
and then kind of take off. I mean, um, I think he's a great fit. And the Packers have had success in the second round. I think he'll be very similar to Jordy Nelson there. This guy can get down the field but has that size that you can't just stuff him at the line. Um, and my big question with Christian Watson was route running. You know, can he do it? He didn't really have to do it that much. Then at the senior bowl, I mean, that's what he excelled at. It was like, if, if all these things come together, I mean, this guy could be really good. So that is scary for the rest of the NFC North, but um, we'll see if Aaron Rodgers trusts Watson enough year one. I'm, I'm not sure we see as much of Christian Watson as uh, I would have liked to in this first year. We're speaking with Shane P. Hallam of Draft Countdown. And Shane, um, I know we've been mostly Bears-centric, but I have to ask about my Cleveland Browns. Um, the, the Browns had a mixed bag, and of course some of the draft uh, draft Knicks have been saying their highest grade is going to their kicker that they drafted out of LSU. Not a good draft. For me as a Browns fan, that's not good. a good sign when your highest grade goes to a kicker. But still, uh, your honest assessment of the, of the Browns draft. I think it was solid for not having a pick in the first two rounds. I think it always looks worse than it is. Yeah. Um, but, you know, they, they drafted one of my top 10 corners in Martin Emerson from Mississippi yep. State, who I think is a really good zone corner with good ball skills uh, that, that SEC teams threw away from him. They don't want to mess with him. That's usually a good sign. Uh, I, you know, I thought the David Bell pick at 99 overall, a lot of people will look at the workout and say, wow, this is bad. But I mean, this is the guy that as, a, as an 18 year old was dominating Ohio State, was dominating in the Big Ten. That, that's usually a good sign. Like, I don't care how yeah. athletic you are, mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, usually you'll get it done. I, I, then I thought the best pick was Perry and Winfrey, the defensive lineman from Oklahoma. Mm-hmm. I had rated as right. a top 50 player, getting him at 108. The fit, I'm interested to see where they play him, what the fit is. He's, you know, he's not a, a run stuffer by any means. Like, he's an explosive first step pass rush only. But if you can find a, a rotation or a place to fit him in, I think it's good. I, I mean, I thought the Browns had a very solid draft mm-hmm. uh, for, like I said, not having a pick in the first two rounds. You know, it, they, they did well with those, the third rounders. And I really like that Winfrey pick. And of course, they had their, uh, the big compelling thing for about seven minutes was the potential trade with uh, Carolina, which didn't go down. And it appears that Baker's probably going to be staying with uh, with the Browns for a while. But that's a whole different other story. What about <laughs> the rest of the AFC North? I, I thought the AFC North had a pretty solid draft uh, as a whole. I mean, Baltimore was pretty – I think everyone's like, oh, but this Baltimore draft was great. I mean, mm-hmm. it, it was. It's not flashy, but, like, to, to get Kyle Hamilton is my third-rated player in the draft at 14, to get Tyler Linderbaum, who I had in the top 20 mm-hmm. at 25. I mean, it, it was just kind of a value pick at every spot, and they, they got all those fourth-rounders to kind of clean up that value they knew was going to be there. It was just a smart way to work the board. Uh, I mean, the Steelers, it's just, it's, I like the George Pickens and the Marvin Leal picks, but it's going to come down to Kenny Pickens, a franchise quarterback or not. You know, if he's not, it doesn't matter what else you did in this draft. No one's going to remember it. Uh, so, you know, I wouldn't have taken Kenny Pickett at 20 myself, but, you know, no one knows him better than, I guess, the Steelers working out in the same facility. So, yes, yes. You know, we'll see what happens there. And uh, I mean, I thought the Bengals had a solid draft for picking a 31. They, they, they got some impact players and really they, fe- they knew their weakness. So we just was the secondary. Let's, you know, we, we spent on the offensive line. Let's just draft all secondary guys. I, I think that's a smart way to approach it too. Mm-hmm. So who had the best draft overall uh, out of the 32 teams and who had the worst uh, draft of the 32? Well, best draft, uh, yeah, I'll go maybe a little bit off the board. I mean, I think people are giving them high, high marks, but I think the New York Jets 
actually yep. had the best yeah. draft. You know, uh, they took Sauce Gardner, who was my number one corner, as the number two corner. They took Garrett Wilson, my number one receiver, as the number two receiver. They took Jermaine Johnson, who I had as a top ten pick at 26. Um, mm-hmm. I thought the move up for Brees Hall was cheap. Jump the Texans, you get a three-down starting running back. You know, they, they, they get a two-way tight end in Jeremy Ruckert, who's going to be a nice safety blanket. I think they helped Zach Wilson, got him what he needed, and got weapons to build this offense. So, um, to me, I think that was one of the – you know, one, one of the better drafts as a whole. Um, you know, I think worst draft is always tough uh, to like pinpoint a team and say, oh, you know, this was bad. I mean, honestly, um, I, I, I guess like New England's the easy pick. I would actually say Jacksonville uh, for having the number one pick just didn't do good enough for me. Like I'm not a Trayvon Walker fan. I think, oh. I, you know, I, I think the athleticism, the upside's huge, but he had the least amount of sacks of any edge rusher drafted in the top three since the year 2000 when they started tracking sacks in the NCAA. That's not a great sign. I think you're kind of giving your wagon to them. They drafted two off-ball linebackers. I like Devin Lloyd. I like Chad Muma. But I just don't think it's a, a, a super important position. And, and I thought the rest of their picks were average. I think for a team picking first, usually that's an easy draft to say this is a good draft. And it's just sure, not sure. to me. So I actually go with Jacksonville and, and not just rehash um, New England taking, uh, you know, taking, taking players around early every time. Cause every time I bash a Bill Belichick draft, it just goes the wrong way for me. So <laughs> that was going to be my question. Were you going to, were you as surprised as the Rams were that they, dev- that they decided to draft Cole strange? Uh, not quite, not quite as bad as the Rams were. I, I wasn't looking at him at one Oh four. I'll say that. I, <laughs> I, mean, I, th- I thought he was going to go in round two, but it, it was super surprising to see him get drafted in the first round. I mean, I don't think uh, I don't think anyone did. I think Pro Football Focus said they had uh, five hundred thousand people do a New England Patriots mock drafts in their simulator. Two took Cole Strange in the first round. I don't know those two had to be Bill Belichick just trying things out. But exactly. like, exactly. no, no exactly. one, no one saw this coming. No one saw this coming. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. So um, I know you're uh, probably busy and uh, we'll try to uh, wrap it up in a few minutes, but um, regarding the bears uh, going forward, now that the draft is over, what players out there on the market, you know, like uh, probably still a free agent who is still out there that can uh, help out, you know, the bears offensively and defensively. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think if you're the bears now, it's about, uh, you know, can I take a look at, um, can I take a look at what's going to help my offense? I think you want to be able to support yeah. Justin Fields as much as possible. Are sure. there players still out there? Can you dra- can you assign Will Fuller? I think that would be a nice signing. Um, who receivers with Houston for a while? You know, sign mm-hmm. of Miami didn't do much. He got hurt. He gets hurt a lot. But yes, you know, that's a problem. Me, that is a problem. <laughs> but to me, like that's fine. You know, let's let's dra- let's bring him in. You could probably get him pretty cheap. He's a nice, another deep threat. And when he's healthy, get him on the field. And hopefully it adds another weapon. I I think they just need to continue to look at someone. Maybe it's him. Maybe it's T.Y. Hilton. Maybe you want a veteran like that um, who can just come in and give uh, some depth at that receiver position. I think it's the most important thing right now. Mm. (laughs) Well, Shane P. Hallam, we thank you very much. Uh, we appreciate you coming on at, the, at, at short notice, talking about the draft, uh, one of the great draft gurus around the country. We appreciate it. I know we have to go uh, do another hit uh, at the top of the hour, so we're going to let you go. We appreciate you coming on with us. No, th- thank you for having me. It was fun to talk to you, and I uh, hope you 
you know, good luck to the, the Bears and the Browns this year for both of you. <laughs> Thank you, Shane. It. We hope to have you again you very soon. Thank you. Thank you. And we will continue with the double uh, A team. We have another guest coming up. We'll talk about that coming up after these messages and also discuss what this month is all about. A very important month as this is Asian American Pacific Islander Heritage Month. And we'll discuss all that coming up on the double A team on the Barnum Network after this. Zim, Joe, Vinny, and Gonzo. Join these White Sox fanatics every Monday night for the South Burbs Hitmen. You're going to be treated to great guests, top analysis, smart debates. South Burbs Hitmen with Zim, Joe, Benny, and Gonzo only on the Barroom Network. And South Burbs Hitmen will be coming up right after this show at the top of the hour, not this hour, but next hour, uh, eight o'clock coming up here on the Barroom Network. Uh, Stephen, uh, we have our next guest coming up. That's going to be Mark Farinuwata, the a spe- a spectacular investigative journalist for ESPN. We're going to be talking to him about some of the stories he's made about uh, the owner of the uh, new of the Brooklyn Nets and his ties to Alibaba and his ties to China. We'll talk about that coming up. But uh, let's uh, in the short time that we have here before he comes on, Stephen, this is uh, Asian American Pacific Islander Heritage Month. Um, it just began. And some of the things that we, we can discuss is, of course, some of the increased um, violence against Asian uh, Americans and Pacific Islanders in the AAPI community that has happened over the last two years. It's something that's a report that came out. I saw that NBC News yesterday, and it's very distressing. And it's one of the reasons why we have this show to call out violence and to also call out bad behavior against the AAPI community. Oh, absolutely. And, um, you know, I'm very, very thankful for the uh, yeah. uh, the Barroom Network for giving us the platform to do this show. Um, you know, it's been very, very uh fun and also uh, resourceful. Uh, there's no question that the violence uh, towards our community has not died down, unfortunately. Um, there's been a steady, uh, you know, cases in New York, LA, and uh, San Francisco, and then, you know, some other cities, unfortunately. And, um, you know, for us to have this platform to talk with the uh, AAPI uh, members, work in the sports and entertainment uh, industry, which unfortunately there are not many of them. And, uh, you know, uh, it is a struggle to come up with the, you know, the guests who, who work with us. And, uh, you know, just like we saw with uh, Shane, you know, uh, you know, who's obviously not an Asian person, but, you know, we definitely uh, uh, ask our guests whenever we uh, invite them to our guests uh, as a guest, you know, that uh, there is nothing political, obviously, about fighting the um, the stigma that our community has had to endure the last uh, two years. And, uh, you know, we will hope to uh, continue to use this uh, platform and uh, whatever that is out there that uh, both Ken and I can utilize uh, to amplify our voices and, uh, you know, hopefully have a, a meaningful conversation, uh, regardless of whether you're an Asian American or, you know, uh, Caucasian, African American, and uh, Hispanics. You know, whoever's yeah. out there who wants to talk with us and who wants to engage us in sports and and uh, social aspect of it. You know, we will continue to uh, do so. 
and as we've talked about, we we're on every other Monday, uh, usually on at uh, uh, six o'clock Eastern time, uh, six o'clock Central time, or no, seven o'clock Central time, and then um, uh, usually for an hour. But uh, in the past, we've had been two hours, and we've talked about a lot of we've called out a lot of bad behavior against the Asian Pacific community and Nomad. Thank you very much, and we really appreciate you standing with us, and we appreciate all the allies that are uh, with us here on this show. And uh, like we said, we've called out some bad behavior, whether it's been uh, the talk about uh, Shohei Otani uh, by Stephen A. Smith, whether it's been the uh, bad behavior. We're also even some called out some great behavior. If, if you remember, we had the MMA fighter uh, who fights mostly in Taiwan and will also help defuse the situation. We had that on him on earlier uh, in, in our series. So we're always looking for not, we're not just also calling out bad behavior, but we also want to call out the good when we see it. Absolutely. You know, it's not just about negativity. You know, there there have been some progress. There's no question. You know, Pablo Torre and Mina Kimes from ESPN has uh, have had their, uh, you know, platforms and they have, uh, you know, done a great job. I still have some questions as to maybe, you know, hopefully that uh, those two who have their own platform, obviously a bigger one, you know, we've called them out, you know, for maybe not doing enough with uh, Mikey Chen from the Irish Wire at the beginning, at the very first show. And uh, we hope that uh, this month uh, they will uh, utilize those uh, voices. And thank you, Ravi, also for uh, your comments as well. Thank you, Ravi. Let's bring in our, our next guest. It's Mark Farinuwada, who is one of the uh, best uh, reporters that you find out there. He's uh, Some of the things he's best known for was League of Denial, which he wrote about the NFL and the concussion scandal. Also, if you go back to 2004, 2005, he and Lance Williams wrote about the Balco scandal and Game of Shadows. Um, Mark has been doing some great work for ESPN, also talking about writing about Joe Tsai, the uh, owner, one of the owners of the Brooklyn Nets. We'll be talking to him about that tonight. Mark, thank you for joining us tonight. My pleasure, guys. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Uh, Mark, let's talk a, a little bit about some of the work that you're doing right now, looking into the NBA's relationship with China and sure. uh, some of the stuff that's going on with Joe Tsai. Uh, if you're not familiar, uh, Joe Tsai is uh, one of the partners and principal owners of Alibaba. And if you're not familiar with Alibaba, uh, think about Amazon on steroids. It's much bigger. It's uh, one of the bigger uh, e-commerce uh, sites that you'll ever see. And uh, when I first hit Alibaba uh, one day when I was going through a rabbit hole on something, I was like really amazed at some of the stuff that you can find there. Uh, Mark, let's talk a little bit about uh, Joe Tsai and the NBA and its relationship with China. Sure, absolutely. Um, you know, we we decided to look into, um, spend some time exploring Joe Tsai in the wake of, you know, you might remember if you follow the NBA back in 2019, Daryl Morey, who was at the time the general manager of the Houston Rockets, mm -hmm. tweeted his support of uh, yes. protesters in Hong Kong. Right. And and that event, which seemed sort of innocuous at the time, basically set off an international incident. Um, the, the NBA was abruptly removed from uh, television in China. Sponsors fled the league uh, in China. And... Um, and the league was basically barred from television for nearly three years. And, and so we, we started working on stories related to that. And that ultimately led us to take a look at Sai because Sai is really, you know, the, the, the Maury tweet underscored the complex nature of having a relationship with an authoritarian regime, right? Mm -hmm. So you've got the NBA, which is, 
you know, perhaps more forward thinking than any other league in dealing with human rights issues and talking about social justice issues here in the States. Um, at the same time, doing business with a country in which human rights abuses um, have been alleged on significant levels, mm-hmm. um, particularly in, in a region in Western China known as Xinjiang. And, uh, and there it's, it's alleged that, that uh, China has basically put more than a million Uyghur Muslims in, in effectively concentration camps. They call them re-education camps. Right. So we, we wanted to look at Psy ultimately this, this conflict, and we chose to, to look at the conflict through Psy because here's a guy who perhaps personifies the conflict more than anybody. He's the owner of the Brooklyn Nets. He's very active on social justice here issues here in the States. Um, yet, as you mentioned, he's a co-founder of Alibaba, a company that um, is doing business with at least two companies that have been alleged to be part of the surveillance state created in Xinjiang. As well as that, it was Sai, excuse me, who after Maury's tweet issued his own Facebook post in which he, he seemed to be defending um, the Chinese government basically in their reaction. Um, and his reaction created a stir. And so it was that that led us to decide we wanted to take a look at size positions on China as a way of looking at the conflict the NBA faces. And that's uh, it, it's really interesting, as you mentioned, that that, that conflict, because as you mentioned, Tsai has been uh, very, uh, defended China in, in, in his Facebook posts, uh, this despite him also being from Taiwan, which has its own issues with China, and we can go on that for days. But uh, it's quite interesting to see how, as you mentioned, this conflict that he has being uh, very vocal about social justice here in the United States, and also doing, and also trying to defend uh, the the country that where he's doing business with. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it just it, it really, I think, for us, you know, personified as I mentioned this this conflict. Um, you know. Sai again has been, you know, he's he's spent millions of dollars. Here's a guy who's the, you know, he's worth more than eight billion dollars, and he's spent considerable amounts of of money on issues related in the states to everything from Black Lives Matter to anti Asian hate. Um, you know, the Barclays Center actually had become sort of a hub for the social justice movement in Brooklyn um, during Black Lives Matter, and um, you know, and he really embraced that. Um, But when it came to discussing issues around human rights abuses in China, um, of which there are these very serious allegations, um, you know, he he was much more reticent to talk about it. But also, I think what was really interesting was to look, we we spent a lot of time on the web just looking for any and every possible statement we could find from him. Anytime he'd been interviewed, um, uh, lots of those... uh, um, you know, were, were academic uh, um, institutions where he's speaking in, in you know, in symposiums. Um, and there's a lot of comments for him that are, that are quite interesting in the contra- contrast to the way we look at things in the West. So, for example, Tsai's position, and this is backed up when we talk to sources, really seems to be that um, in, a first, in a one-party system like they have in China, there is a belief and a need to suppress certain uh, abilities for dissent, uh, maybe even a free press to some degree, uh, in the name of economic stability, um, and uh, and that's that's simply his position. And, 
And obviously that's not a position that is, is terribly comfortable for a lot of people in the West. Mm-hmm. Ty has a very, a lot of business holdings. And, and one thing that I noticed in the story that you've written, that not only does he have Alibaba group, but he also has several sports holdings. So it's interesting to see that not only does he have the Nets, but he also is involved with lacrosse and the Premier Lacrosse League and the LAFC and the MLS. It, it, it's something that um, his tentacles have really reached all over the United States. Yeah, he's he's obviously a huge sports fan. I mean, he he talked about in, in some of the speeches we've seen from him, he talks about he came to the, the States when he was 13. He was sent here and he went to private boarding school. Um, his father had come here and gone to Yale, actually, and become a law, successful lawyer before going back to Taiwan and working, opening his own practice and also working in the government. Um, Sai came to the States at 13 and he didn't speak any English. Um, his family background really is Chinese. He is born in Taiwan and he, he's from there, but you know, he, he has talked about how he, he views himself as Chinese. His parents were both born there. And, um, so he came here and he didn't speak any English, but he played sports and he, and he, he has talked about in some of these speeches about how sports were really a, a, a bridging mechanism for him. They allowed him to feel, uh, much more, uh, in touch, um, and, and much less of an outsider. And so he, he played some football in high school and he played lacrosse and he really came to embrace lacrosse. And, and that, that is extended in all sorts of ways. So he, in addition to playing lacrosse, he's a massive lacrosse fan. He played at Yale as a walk-on and, um, and now he's bought into teams and leagues and is a big proponent of trying to push lacrosse in the U S and then by virtue of, of buying into the nets or buying the nets, he also now owns the Liberty. He owns Barclays center um, you know, sports, he has viewed sports as a, as this sort of ability to bridge two worlds, um, as he's described it at various points. We've discussed about, you know, on our show about, you know, sports washing that, uh, you know, the FIFA, the Qatar, uh, you know, and, uh, China has, uh, utilized over the years. You mentioned about the China's ever-growing presence in the entertainment industry. If you go to a movie theater or, you know, streaming, you, you're going to see some, uh, you know, uh, studio names uh, that is, uh, you know, Tencent, which is a Chinese uh, e-commerce company, among other things. You're going to see that a lot of those, uh, you know, if you go watch a movie, you know, at the beginning or the end credits and stuff. So that's the, uh, you know, the huge outreaching goal that we see uh, on a normal, regular basis. Do you look at Joe as some sort of a guy who is caught in a, you know, rock between hard places, uh, you know, trying to appease both the U.S. and and China? I mean, I I try not to analyze. I think a lot of the people we talked to viewed that as what was going on, that that there's a desire. um, You know, we, we quote several experts and people who were involved in the dynamic that there was a challenge for Psy and, frankly, the league to deal with this conflict, right, of balancing their own personal views. Um, although, again, Sai Sai has talked openly about how his personal views may be about China, may be in conflict with how we all view, you know, uh, free speech and um, and dissent here in the States, just a different dynamic. And, and his his desire to, to sort of point out that we're talking about two different political systems. But I don't think there's any doubt that, that there are people who viewed his Facebook post, the league's reaction, and, and his subsequent um, position around allegations that he 
tried to get Maury fired, which he denies, um, as being rooted in this this challenge between trying to live with a foot in, in both worlds, basically. Um, and and if you're going to do business in China, as you pointed out, I mean, the, the, the NBA is hardly alone in this. Virtually every company, and we, we noted this in our story, that, that Disney, which owns ESPN, and, and ESPN is a partnership with Tencent, the company you mentioned. So we're, we're all dealing with these conflicts. And so, um, you know, it's it's not unique, but but there is a balancing act that people have to do if they're going to do business um, in China. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Uh, Mark, also, too, uh, interesting to, about about Tsai. Uh, has he, have you managed to get him to comment for the story at all? No, he, he declined to participate. He, he declined to comment on the record and, and talk about this for the story. We talked to sources who were familiar with his thinking, and so we felt like we got a sense of of uh, you know his position and 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 a, and a validation that the comments and things we'd read and heard from him were were not taken out of context. We're in keeping with um, his beliefs, um, you know. And again, um, uh, you know, I I think there. I mean, he lays them out very clearly. It's a it's a clear position that um, in that 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 China is in a position. He argues that um, is not as advanced economically as the U.S. And that in order for there to be economic stability in the country, um, there needs to be um, these kinds of, of um, the kind of ability to to, um, you know, fast forward, if you will, through through issues that maybe get sidetracked in the states. And and again, I don't I don't think that's a very popular message here in the states. Though he has not commented on any of the human rights abuses um, and or address those or touch those. He. He got asked in in um, generally about human rights abuses uh, during a CNBC interview two years ago or a year ago, and he basically sort of avoided the question. He he said you'd have to be specific about wh- which ones, and the interviewer did not follow up on which ones he was talking about. And Sai, you know, Sai's message was, "Look, I think most people in China are are happy." And are happier than they've been every year, and that's that's the position he takes. Mm-hmm. Um, you've written a, a, a couple of articles related to NBA in China with your brother uh, Stefan Aru um, about the uh, NBA's investigation into uh, NBA China Academy. Uh, is there any ties or correlations to the uh, the article you wrote about Joe Size and uh, his, uh, you know? involvement with the, both the NBA and China? I mean, the link is just the topic, really. You know, the the story we did about abuses at the NBA academies in China was the first story we did together, at least, that stemmed out of the Mori tweet. I mean, the Mori tweet was really fascinating to us, you know, to see somebody, you know, you know, issue a tweet that turns into an international incident is, you don't see that all the time, right? And so I think, I, I think that generated a lot of interest from, you know, Steve and I work on a unit uh, at ESPN that this is what we do. We look into um, sort of we do deeper dives into issues sometimes that are involved the company's business partners. And we just thought it was fascinating, this dynamic that existed between the NBA and China. We knew very little about it. And so we decided to embark on doing some some reporting around it. And that led first to this story about um, this question of um, these NBA training academies in China. They'd opened 
uh, three or four of them, I believe, one including one in Xinjiang. And um, and as we dug into that and did reporting, we found out that that there were allegations of physical abuse going on by the Chinese coaches there. Um, these are NBA training academies sponsored by the NBA, run by the NBA, in tandem with the Chinese government and coaches from China also participating. And there were allegations of abuses there, as well as coaches talking about you know, the, the level of surveillance that was going on in Xinjiang while they were working there. Mark, how does the NBA try to uh, marry it? So I know it's, it, it has this marriage in China, but also there's the, there, as you talked about the human rights violations, the IOC of course had to answer for that as well uh, with the Uyghurs. So how does the NBA try to justify its relationship in China? And even after the point where, it was basically kicked out of the country for for three years. How does it try to appeal and try to get back in this uh, and this and this continuation? And I'll, uh, and Ravi's a great question. That why does the NBA continue to ignore the treatment of the Uyghurs and also try to justify this marriage that they're trying to do in China? Well, I think the first the, the answer to the first question is they don't. Um, there, there's not the league is not commenting on these issues. The league basically avoids them. You know, when we did our story about the training academies, we interviewed Mark Tatum, the deputy commissioner of the NBA, who oversees uh, the league's presence internationally. And when we pressed Tatum on why the league had ultimately shut down its academy in Xinjiang, um, he and, and said, look, did it have anything to do with human rights abuses? Uh, Tatum did everything he could to avoid talking about that topic. We asked it four or five different ways, maybe more. And, and Tatum's answer was, uh, was to avoid that issue entirely. So the league has not addressed this question of the Uyghurs. The league has not addressed the issue of, of do it, dealing with human rights abuses in China. The league's position, as frankly as the IOCs and, and others, usually is, hey, sports are a unifying tool for America for, for the world, yeah. and we're going to be part of this, this unit. We're, we're going to be part of unification. We're going to be part of solving problems or bringing the world together through sports. And we're not about politics. Um, you know, I, I think there's plenty of people who see that as, well, not just naive, but, but perhaps impossible. Right. Um, but that's, that's the position that the league and, and as you say, you mentioned IOC, FIFA, they all take the same position when they're pushed on issues around human rights. Right. You're uh, well known for your work with Steve Williams for the uh, breaking the Balco uh, investigation, which for those of you who remember back in the early 2000s when the, uh, the steroid usage was very much rampant in baseball. Uh, the Bay Area Lab Corp, I believe that's the, uh, the acronym for the Balco, uh, was providing the, um, uh, the steroids to people like Barry Bonds, Rafael Palmero, among others. Um, what do you remember when you first started writing that pieces? And, and I dug into it, and you almost went to jail <laughs> for that. And, and can right. you give us a more detailed insight into, you know, what what you were actually facing with, you know, breaking stories and having to go to jail, which is somewhat rampant and so similar to what the uh, you know uh, the the jur journalists all around the country and around the world are, you know, uh, are faced with on a normal daily basis. Sure. I'll, I'll try to be, I'll try to be brief. It's a long, it's been a long time ago. My memory's sort of cruddy and I, and there's parts of it I've tried to 
block out of my mind. But um, yeah, I mean, I, 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 Lance Williams and I started covering that story in 2003. Um, and it, it basically stemmed from a raid by the IRS of a lab uh, in, in uh, Northern California near the San Francisco airport. And, and the lab basically was providing steroids and other performance enhancing drugs to a whole range of athletes, including some of the greatest athletes in the world, most notably in our backyard, Barry Bonds, the home run king, um, as well as several NFL players, many other baseball players, some of the greatest track and field athletes in the world. Northern and I think Jones. Lance and I, Lance and I thought that when we started covering this story, it would actually, Lance more than me probably, that it would be a relatively short story. Once the government announced indictments, you'd see the names of the athletes who were using the drugs. It would be an open secret, essentially. Um, but that's not what happened. The, the, the government, for some reason, protected the identity of all the athletes involved. And so as reporters, we were really interested in finding out, you know, who was using these drugs when they were brought before a federal grand jury to testify under oath. What did they say? Did they admit it? Did they lie about it? what did they say? And so we worked on this story for several years. It ultimately led to a book called Game of Shadows. And, um, and the reporting exposed, as you noted, widespread use of performance-enhancing drugs by these baseball players. Um, and, and in the course of doing that, we got our hands on uh, grand jury testimony from a number of the athletes, including Bonds and others. And, um, and I think one of the issues that arose that you mentioned was um, – the people were not happy about that, including the government and the judge. And they wanted to know, how did we get this information? And they believed that somebody had broken the law to provide us with this information. And so the a leak investigation was started and we were subpoenaed. We were actually issued subpoenas, Lance and myself, to testify before a grand jury and tell where we got the material. And, and it was really, I mean, I will tell you, it was obviously not a pleasant time. We, we were sentenced to up to 18 months in prison. Um, the only nice thing that happened when we went to our sentencing hearing was that the judge let us stay out on appeal. And while we were appealing, um, you know, the government found another way to find out our sources. And I, you know, the, the, Lance and I have talked about this many times. The, the, the easiest part was knowing we were never going to give up our sources. You know, you just, this is what you do. You, you, you don't expect it's going to go this far, but you make promises and you're going to keep them. Um, the hardest part was dealing with it really on a more personal level. You know, I had kids at the time, they were eight and six, you know, having to explain to them why dad might go to prison for doing his job was, was not an easy task. So, um, you know, it ended up, we did not go to prison, but, you know, the person I believe who's a whistleblower in the truest sense did and, um, and served more time combined than any of the drug dealers or the athletes. So um, the case was really messed up in a lot of ways. Um, but, um, but it was a really rewarding and powerful story to cover for sure. It, it changed my life undoubtedly and, and the trajectory of my, my career in many ways. Absolutely. And it also led over to your work, uh, currently at ESPN. And of course, I can't, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask about, uh, of course, uh, the league of denial, um, which, uh, one thing when I was at awful announcing, we covered extensively, uh, where ESPN had to take its name off the, um, or not didn't have to, but chose to take its name right. off of the uh, Frontline documentary, which you worked very hard on uh, in, in regards to that. And, of course, the NFL, I think the ramifications of that are still with the NFL going today in, in, in regards to their concussion protocol, but even even how they even treat concussions. Um, what, what was that like when you, had, when you heard that uh, 
this investigation, which you had gone into for so long, but then also had to get ESPN decided to take his name off off off, off of the frontline in, uh, documentary, which was uh, so critically acclaimed. Yeah, it was a. I mean, it was not another not pleasant experience for sure. I think uh, you know we work at a. I, you know, I mean, look, ESPN. I've been there for 15 years now, and um, one of the very first first questions I asked when I interviewed there was you know, are there going to be concerns or issues about work doing stories about our business partners? And the answer was, no, we're not going to run into that. You know, we're, we're going to be allowed to do what we need to do. There's going to be effectively a separation of church and state. And, um, and look, it's a weird place to work and it creates conflicts for sure. None more so than with the NFL where the ESPN pays, I think it's $2 billion a year for the rights to Monday night football. So, you know, I always tell people this about the, the experience with League of Denial. Two things can be equally true. On the one hand, it was not a proud moment, I think, for journalism and the journalists in the building. Um, ESPN, through Disney, decided to take its name off, arguing that it didn't have editorial control over the product at the very end. You know, I think those of us who had been working on it knew that was sort of hard to swallow because, frankly, it was rooted in all our reporting, which had been on ESPN and been part of that all along. Um, and so that was a bit hard to deal with, I think, politically. At the same time, um, you know, none of the journalism changed and the journalism won. ESPN still aired two long excerpts of the documentary, which was always the plan. Myself and my brother and another colleague of ours, Peter Keating, were in the documentary throughout. So ESPN had presence all over it. Um, ESPN ran a long excerpt of our book in the magazine and online. Uh, we were on all sorts of interview shows talking about the program, the the work, and then we continued to cover it for years after, uh, aggressively, uh, much to the NFL chagrin. So, again, I, I think this is one of those deals where it's true; it's not a good look. ESPN took a bad rap for it, and probably rightfully so. At the same time, I, I will defend ESPN to the end about this: that that nothing changed from a journalistic standpoint. The material all survived and ran. And not only that, we covered the story aggressively uh, and continue to to be interested in it. Mm -hmm. You also continue to, as you mentioned, uh, the conflict of also having to investigate some of the business partners, but uh, like including the investigation to the NBA and also Joe Tsai. Um, luckily, since that time, have you received any pushback in regards to some of the investigations into the NBA or or into their uh, the academy in China? No, I mean, the, you know, the league's not happy with those stories. We, we have conversations that are, you know, uh, you know, push back when we're talking to PR people and, and others around the league. At the same time, you know, uh, I'm sure there are phone calls made that, that I don't hear about to my bosses and their bosses. Um, but again, I always go back to the same thing. The stories ran. ESPN gave our size story fantastic play on the homepage. Um, it got a lot of viewership and readership. It got moved around the web. And, um, you know, and I think that's all you can ask for. You know, we, all we can do is do the stories and people will do with them what they will. But, um, you know, I, I, I work at a place that has devoted a lot of time and money to investigative reporting of its own business partners. And uh, and that's that's, you know, uh, that's to be admired for sure. And, and, you know, I'm grateful to be able to work at a place like that. Oh, Steve, you got to un uh, unmute again. We're, uh, we're talking with Mark Fanariwada of ESPN, uh, investigative uh, reporter, uh, having uh, on with us. 
Aldo posted a very good question that maybe uh, hopefully you can uh, give us some insight. Uh, what is the state of investigative sports journalism now with the state of newspaper industry decaying? Is new media offering sufficient resources for journalists like you? You know, it's it's a really good question. I You know, the, the, the newspaper I used to work at, the San Francisco Chronicle, I, I was part of an investigative team there ultimately when Balco happened. And that team died for a long time. There was no investigative team there. It's started to come back now that the paper is doing more investigative reporting. I think there are other papers around the country that are continuing to do this, obviously, but but it, it's expensive work. Um, and as, as Aldo notes, newspapers are going through a massive transition and change, right? And, mm-hmm. um, you know, and they're still trying to figure out how to make enough money to survive in some cases, especially much smaller papers. Um, I, I don't, you know, I, I think that there's, there's sort of a twofold answer. On the one hand, um, you know, there are more outlets now available as the media as the media changes. And so mm-hmm. there's more ways to sort of um, get material out there. At the same time, um, you know, as I said, this kind of reporting is really expensive, both because it's time consuming. And then if you try to do it for TV, which we often do, it's even more costly. Um, and there aren't a lot of places that have the kind of resources for that. I, I still have faith that um, the ESPNs of the world, the Washington Post, the New York Times, these big entities are going to find ways to do it. And that smaller newspapers and smaller television stations are also, you know, you're going to still find places that are committed to it. Um, but but in the end, I think it is a real concern as we see the shifting media. Um, you know, I don't think it's just a concern about, about investigative either. I mean, this is a concern about just covering, you know, City Hall. This is a concern about covering... Um, stories in your in your neighborhoods um, as papers shrink and as fewer and fewer resources are available the amount of the ability to get sort of a diversity of of opinion and information becomes more difficult what is you, you, you I, I mentioned earlier about you know you have written so many articles with your brother uh, Steve tell me about what is it like to work with your brother uh, in the investigative journalism side so it's it's uh it's mostly fantastic. I mean, I'm really lucky. It's it's just the two of us. We're this he's my only sibling. Um, he's three years older than I am, so I have a little bit of uh, baby brother, you know, follows big brother's footsteps kind of thing, and that that comes with its own insecurities, of course. If you're a if you're a younger sibling, you get it. Um, but for me, uh, you know, he's he's look, I'm biased, obviously, but he's he's the best reporter I know. He's just unbelievable. Um, he sees stories in, in really smart and thoughtful ways. And, um, and I've just learned a ton from being able to work with him. And, and then plus, we're, we're such close friends that being able to work with somebody you really like and respect and can laugh with and have fun with and mostly trust, because this kind of record, reporting really requires um, trust as much as anything, I think. And so, um, you know, I mostly just count my blessing. I'm just really lucky to be able to do it. It's really fun. We're speaking with Mark Farinuwada of ESPN, who uh, we talked about some of his bigger stories. But uh, I have to ask you, um, what are some of the stories that uh, that haven't hit the accolades that that, that you've seen, like uh, Game of Den- uh, Game of, uh, League of Denial and Game of Shadows, and the stories that you're doing now? What are some of the other stories that you feel most proud of that you've worked on? Oh, that's a good that's a good question. Well, I I just did a story. I mean, we got a lot of attention for it, so it's not that we didn't. I did a story. 
a few years ago with a freelance reporter who came to ESPN with a story about um, it was about a guy, a, a track coach who had been accused of uh, molesting boys and young men for 40 years, basically. Um, there were dozens of alleged victims and uh, we ended up doing, we ended up basically revealing his, his, the allegations against him. It never been made public. Um, this freelancer found the story. He began digging into it, saw that there was a story there and, and came to ESPN. And we don't, we don't actually do a lot with freelancers. Um, but thankfully my boss saw the, the value in the story. He partnered myself and Mike Kessler together as well as with a producer, Greg Amante. And we published a, a 10,000 word story, a 20, 25 minute TV piece, and ultimately a four hour, four part podcast um, that revealed the extent to which this guy had been uh, alleged to have abused and um, you know, sexually uh, assaulted um, you know, dozens of boys and young men over a 40 year span. And I, I, you know, I, I think I'm really proud that we were able to get all these these guys to trust us and tell their stories. Um, they're the heroes of those those stories. I mean, they they just don't get told without people having the courage to come forward. Um, but I, I'm really proud of that kind of work. Is there any uh, stories you're currently working on that you don't mind sharing with us that you're kind of like, uh, you know, give us a preview like uh, that that could be like a huge one. Maybe not the, you know, your colleague Dom Van Natta who broke stories about Jerry Jones's paternity yeah. test and, uh, you know, Mark Cuban being accused of, uh, you know, uh, stuff like that that we had we covered last month. Um, is there any good stories you guys are working on right now? I mean, I think, you know, I think my colleagues are always working on really fascinating stuff. For me, I'm looking for a new story, frankly. So if you've got a good idea, send it my way. I, I remain really, I remain really interested in the NBA um, and the conflicts it faces over this relationship with China and elsewhere. So, you know, I, I want to continue to spend time trying to see if there's material there. I, I don't know. We'll see. Um, but I, I, I think whenever you can get at the, the sort of tension that exists for these leagues um, around around the business um, and other social issues, um, you know, I, I just think it becomes really compelling um, and, and and sort of useful and revealing for readers and and viewers. Mm -hmm. Well, I will tell you, uh, there's a story that's happening in my neck of the woods in North, in North Kingston, Rhode Island. Apparently, two high school coaches conducted naked fat tests on, on their students on their uh one was a football coach and i think there was a second coach that was also uh exposed and doing not to, bad pun there but also found to be doing this as well so it's something wow. that's just come out so i don't know if that's that be of interest of espn but uh sure. it's just coming out about now and the 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 football coach was just uh fired oh, oh for his position he'd been there for quite some time i think and wow. also there was another coach that came out as well so i don't know if that be be of interest but it's something that um it had been happening for several years and uh, the the kids had just just had the courage to come out and tell their parents about it and uh it's being investigated by the state so it's something that's horrible right. yeah mm -hmm. it, it really yeah. is so i'll take a so, look absolutely so <laughs> Absolutely. So something if you're interested in uh, it, it, it's something that would be great to see if ESPN be, be interested in, in investigating that. Um, Mark Farinuwada, it's great to talk to you about uh, the, the work you're doing. Um, we love to have you on again. Uh, we much appreciate it. And uh, great, great to talk to you tonight. 
Ken and Stephen, thank you guys so much. Anytime, holler anytime. I'm happy to do it. Thanks for the interest in the work. I really appreciate it. Thank, thank you, Ken. Uh, thank you, Mark. All right. Thank you. Take care. We'll talk thank to you, you very soon. And the AA team will continue. We'll have our last segment and we'll talk about uh, Asian American Pacific Islander Heritage Month and uh, some of the things we uh, uh, some of the things that we want to talk about and also the uh, upcoming shows uh, that we'll be having in the next few weeks. All that coming up on the AA team on the Barroom Network. The past year has seen a 1,900% rise in anti-Asian hate crime in New York City alone. With 2,800 incidents reported across 47 states and Washington, D.C., this is a national crisis, crisis. and we need your help to call it out. Call it it a crime. Crime. Call it what it is. Call it what it is. Racism. Racism. Let's stand up together Ken Fang along with Stephen Nagishi as we continue on the double A team here on the Barroom Network. Um, fantastic guests again tonight. Uh, Shane Hallam of Draft Countdown and Mark Farinuato of ESPN. Um, you can't get any better than that. Uh, two different topics, uh, talking about the NFL draft and then also about Mark's fantastic um, investigations over the many uh, years that he's been with ESPN and also outside of ESPN, we also talk about Game of Shadows. Stephen, uh, fantastic stuff tonight. Oh, absolutely. I think, uh, you know, we were able to cover the uh, the NFL draft uh, um, with Shane. Uh, obviously, this network will focus a lot on the, uh, you know, the review of the NFL draft throughout the week. Uh, you know, although we'll be doing the show with uh, Danny Shimon and Neil Stopchinski, Uh, later this week with the special guests and uh, uh, you know uh, there will be more coming and for us to have uh, somebody like uh, Mark Fanaru Wada uh, with his uh, incredible insight and uh, incredible career sharing his experience and you know we had a lot of people commenting about the uh, the importance of journalism and the uh, you know the the powers to be you know suppressing and stuff like that. I, I you know it's it's a great conversation and uh, we're very very thankful people are showing a very uh, important uh, topic, especially in this day and age, whether it's sports or politics. So mm-hmm. absolutely, and uh, one thing, of course, we also, as we mentioned before, we also call out bad behavior. Um, unfortunately, we had to talk about what happened in NASCAR. Um, over the last week or so, uh, Denny Hamlin had a tweet. And, Stephen, I, I'll let you talk more about this. I think you're more familiar with the story. Sure. I just came across this uh, a day or two ago uh, myself, to be honest. So what happened was, I think in the, the – not this week's this weekend's race, but the one before, I think Danny Hamlin had a bit of an issue with the way Kyle Larson was driving. Uh, Kyle Larson is a, a Japanese-American race driver who got in, himself into – uh, a hot water and lost his uh, racing seat, or more likely he got fired after using the N-word back in 2020 when they were doing the uh, simulated uh, racing uh, as the pandemic hit the uh, the U.S. and uh, there were no races. And um, so when Danny Hamlin got into a bit of a, you know, racing, you know, nearly got car crashed or sidewiped, um, I think somebody posted a, uh, 
an Asian uh, female driver on the uh, Fox is a hit show, um, The Family Guy, which we all yeah. know that if you've watched Family Guy, they always cross the line or at least teeter borderline on, you know, social and race, races, uh, you know, race jokes for many, many years, you know. And uh, Hamlin ended up liking uh, the tweet somebody posted about uh, equaling Kyle Larson's uh, race to, you know, Jap Asian woman driving, you know, we because, you know, Ken and I can at least acknowledge that the, the one of the, you know, the stigma is that the, we, the Asian people, are not a good drivers. So that happened to be the one that the Danny Hamlin ended up liking. Uh, we won't we won't play this, but this is the uh, the snippets of it. If you're interested, uh, you know, please do it at your own risk. Uh, you you will know what I'm what we're talking about. Right. But um, so Bob Pockras, the uh, uh, NASCAR writer for uh, Fox Sports, which carries um, NASCAR racing uh, on Fox Television and FS1. Yep. Um, he interviewed Hamlin after Hamlin was ordered to go to uh, NASCAR uh, initiated uh, sensitive training. And uh, Aldo, if you can play the video uh, of the uh, the tweet that I had sent, uh, please do, or at least post the article. Going through your mind and kind of what was the process from once you saw what the reaction was. I, I don't know. I mean, I think uh, most of it was positive, and uh, but you know, my reaction to the negative is that it just didn't understand what I was doing there. It's just you know, placing a joke. Do you think you need to go to sensitivity training? Uh, I mean, it's our, our respective decision. I think I understand where they're where they're at uh, with it. You know, I. I've done my own sensitivity training. I did diversity training on my own when I started this race team. I, I went with the best in the country and spent time with them, and I understand it all. I just uh, I, I didn't think this fell into that category, but certainly, um, you know, I understand their decision, and it is what it is. You're friends with Kyle. Did you guys talk about or anything at all? Yeah, I mean, we talk, but I'll keep those conversations private. Did you, when you did the tweet, like, did you see the Asian correlation, or did you just? Think... I saw the correlation in the driving. That was, that was it. I didn't even think twice about the other, which is that's the insensitive part, right? Is is that because I am? So, well, first of all, I didn't, but whoever created it uh, put, I guess, his name uh, in front of a woman who's speaking Asian. It's you're, I guess, you're you're making fun of that. So you saw it and then you posted it. Yeah, someone gave it to me and I thought it was hilarious. But it also is insensitive. I, I, I understand. I definitely understand how you know some people could could find it offensive. And, and if it's one, then it's one too many. I don't know. I mean, it's certainly discouraging from that aspect. Um, but. You know, I'll, I'll always continue to be me, and it's not always going to be the most popular um, thing. But I, I just I am who I am, and, and 
certainly I, I never uh, will stop continuing to grow. I, I always want to be a better person, better dad, uh, better partner, better team owner, better driver. I, I always strive to try to be better, and I work really hard at it. And uh, that's why voluntarily I, I did this, you know, more extensive training on my own you know, years ago. So um, I just uh, it just worked out the way it did. And, Certainly, I'll put myself in a bad spot. All right. Well, there's, there are many things to go over there. Uh, first of all, uh, saying he's done sensitivity training on his own. Obviously, he doesn't get it. Um, um, look, I know that Denny Hamlin's quite popular in, in NASCAR, and, and we're not trying to trash NASCAR as a sport. Um, no. it, it's done a lot of progress. It's a lot of a lot of progress in trying to bring um, African Americans into the sport also trying to reach out sure. to uh, to become more mainstream. But then when you have this, and then you have Denny Hamlin trying to say that, you know, well, he found it hilarious, and you can still see him smiling over the whole thing. I don't think That's he gets right. it, Stephen. No, not at all. And the fact that he said is, uh, I'm always going to be me, is a, a cop-out for excuse for somebody who just can't seem to grasp it or maybe as a, you know, as a leeway for another excuse when he says something insensitive, whether it's about us Asian Americans or, you know, maybe African Americans. So that's what's a little bit of a, a disappointment on my part. And I get it. You know, listen, he took the uh, lessons, good, good and everything, but, uh, you know, uh, it still does uh, hurt us, you know. Am I am I going to be upset to a point where I cannot sleep or boycott NASCAR, like you said? No, um, but let's not let's not forget, you know. There's a you know Toyota is also being heavily involved in the uh, you know the racing uh, themselves. So obviously this right. probably does not bode well, even if Danny Hamlin himself was not driving Honda. I'm sorry, uh, Toyota Toyota Camry uh, in the uh, racing series. Um, there have been some people asking me, you know, when the hell did this stereotype got pushed? To be honest, we don't know. But if you go back to early 2000s, for those who are old enough to remember, John Rocker, the uh, former disgraced uh, closer with the uh, Braves, started kind of making these uh, rants when he went on completely off rail. If you remember, he made some off color jokes about Asians and driving and stuff like that, or maybe yeah, Asian American. That is uh, right. If you Google that, you'll find it. John Rocker, you know, uh, Asian or whatever, you know, you put it on Google, you'll probably find that article. So I actually reached out to Bob Pocras, uh by Twitter um, last night asking him if he would be interested in coming to our show, you know, what we what our show is about. And uh, we wanted to kind of delve further into what was happening. Uh, you know, with the uh, this uh, diversity stuff that uh, NASCAR is, uh, you know, insinuating. Um, Aldo, would you mind posting the uh, uh, the screenshot that I got from uh, Bob Pockrass? Sorry, okay, that was so not... said, uh, uh, Oh, here it is. Okay. Okay, so uh, I'm very disappointed with Fox's decision, given the month that this is AAPI Heritage Month. And I believe your network is making a terrible decision uh, to overlook our community. This is, this is coming from you, correct? Um, that is correct. So, the, the, yeah. the, the blue section is what I wrote. Yeah. So basically, you, know, you asked him to come on and uh, Fox, I guess, PR uh, asked him 
basically said denied him from coming on and said uh, Fox would prefer I pass on this one. So and then you wrote that I'm very disappointed with Fox's decision given this month is AAPI Heritage Month and I believe your network is making a terrible decision to overlook our community. However, I will respect it as you have no control over their decisions. Uh, you continue. I hope Fox will change their mind someday and we hope to hear from you. Our show will hope to work with other AAPI leaders in both media and sports to improve relationships with NASCAR, their drivers and Fox sports. And, and uh, I understand where, where Bob is coming from. I know that he would, maybe he would have liked to come on. I, I can't speculate, but um, to hear that uh, one sentence saying Fox would prefer I pass on this one. That's a little disappointing, Steven. No, without a doubt. Look, I wasn't taking it out on Bob, uh, to be honest. Um Look, I, I just wanted to, you know, gauge, you know, what the, the NASCAR was doing uh, with the, the so-called diversity and, uh, in sense, you know, sensitive training. Because, right. you know, the Danny Hamlin mentioned Kyle Larson. And as I said, Kyle Larson himself got into a, you know, a lot of hot water, you know, using the N-word. And I do remember vividly him interviewing with um, Emmanuel Acho. If you remember that one, um, you could Google that one too, folks, uh, whether it's Google or YouTube. And I remember he was like, basically, you know, I don't want to say half-assing it, but he was like smiling. Like we just saw with uh, Danny, you know, you mentioned in that uh, interview that he was talking. Um, I did. I thought it was a bad look for our community considering, uh, right. you know, it was very much close to the, uh, you know, the George Floyd uh, incident that happened around that same time. And, uh, you know, the race relationship between, uh, you know, Asian American and African community has not been always been good. And, um, you know, I appreciate Kyle, you know, saying, you know, that uh, what he did was, you know, understandable, but obviously it's not a good look. And, you know, I'm not going to say that Kyle is speaking on behalf of our, of our own community, uh, entire community. I'm not asking Kyle to you know, give us, give him a pass or anything like that, considering his, his own past. But, uh, you know, Kyle has to understand that maybe hopefully Kyle can be a voice uh, for our community that he didn't right. do enough back when he mentioned, when he used the N word and had to go through his own, uh, you know, demise. And, um, you know, we definitely need more uh, people, uh to be speaking out on our community, especially this month. And then, right. and then Fox having to pass this opportunity, uh, you know, to maybe explain, you know, their lead writer on NASCAR to give us an insight on what the NASCAR's efforts in trying to, you know, diversify and improve race relations, because we all know that it's always been seen as a Southern sports and the, uh, the history of South, obviously, are, you know, what the race relations has always been in question and has been seen dubious. Right. But, um, you know, I will try and reach out to Fox Sports. Um, what, what was not seen there was Bob telling me probably to contact somebody, the higher ups at the Fox Sports for, for you know, if, you, if I had sent any questions. And if I do reach out to them and if I'm lucky enough to get a response, uh, I hope to uh, share uh, to the best of the uh, knowledge. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Uh, as the little time we have to uh, 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 left in this hour, 
uh, in the special 90-minute show, the uh, the double-A team. Uh, this is AAPI uh, Heritage Month, Asian American Pacific Islander Heritage Month. We also talked about a little bit earlier about how we've seen an increase of violence against Asian Americans, especially in the last two years, especially throughout this pandemic. We will continue to call that out, and we continue to call out that behavior, Stephen, um, and hopefully we'll see less of that as, as more and more uh, – the Asian uh, AAPI community continues to speak out, and, and that's what this show is all about. Right. And um, I, and obviously, this show is probably not for everybody, and I get it. Um, it's, it's uncomfortable, uh, trust me. But, uh, you know, we have to amplify our voices. You know, we do exist, and we exist for reasons, you know, whether people want to admit it or not. But, uh, you know, and it's through sports and entertainment that, uh, you know, that we can, uh, you know, have a meaningful conversation and then look through the prisons of, uh, you know, our own community and the, uh, the history. And uh, if we can uh, enlighten you and educate you, uh, go, you know, uh, going forward, uh, we hope you will enjoy it. And, uh, you know, we hope that uh, you will continue to support our uh, show and work as well as the uh, the barroom network going forward and uh we have a, a, our next show is coming up in two weeks and Stephen, who do we have coming in for that show well uh i have been in contact with the uh, one of the rising boxing stars uh brandon lee uh we are hoping to have him on uh we have actually gotten confirmation uh we'll talk a little bit more and uh, we hope to also have another guest of uh, AAPI community who's heavily involved in the uh, creation of uh, uh, AAPI sports site, uh, Pranav Ayer, uh, who works with the uh, ESPN Los Angeles. So uh, we hope to uh, uh, work on the, those two guests, guests and uh, continue to have uh, meaningful dialogues uh, within the AAPI community. And we look forward to seeing you in a couple of weeks. We'll be back on, I think it will be seven uh, Eastern time will be on a back at our regular time. Uh, coming up next is going to be talking about Chicago White Sox talk. And also we would be remiss if, uh, not to mention that again, this is the night of the Met Gala and it is the seventh straight year that Jason Derulo has fallen down the stairs. If you know what <laughs> we're talking about, uh, check on Twitter. Uh, Jason Derulo has once again, falling down the stairs. And uh, if you know that whole joke, uh, you can get to Twitter on that uh, as well. Thank you very much for joining us, Stephen. Have a great night. Thank you for joining us. And we will see you in two weeks on the uh, AA team on the Barroom Network.